evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Nabil Biagio on this live broadcast from Studio 14 this Thursday, February 1st, 2024. The Biden administration imposed more sanctions on companies fueling the conflict in Sudan. I think sanctions will still be used as part of the stick. It's part of the diplomatic efforts to um, uh, put pressure on both sides to actually um, uh, go to the table and and negotiate um, a, a peaceful settlement. And Sudan's paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, denies allegations of fuel supply from South Sudan. This accusation lacks any basis of truth, actually. It is entirely untrue. Rapid Support Forces, RSF, being an integral part of the Sudanese army, has consistently maintained strategic reserves of petroleum. We will have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. In its latest move, the Biden administration has imposed sanctions on three Sudanese companies implicated in exacerbating the conflict in the, in the war-torn Northeast African nation. These companies stand accused of undermining peace, security and stability by providing financial support to the conflicting parties. The sanctions entities Al-Khalid Bank, Al-Fakhr Advanced Works and Zadna International Company for Development were announced on Wednesday. The U.S. State Department, the U.S. Department of the Treasury, emphasized in its statement on Wednesday that the conflict in Sudan persists in part due to pivotal individuals or entities that contribute to the perpetration of violence. To delve deeper into the implications of these sanctions, I interviewed Bakri Al Madani, an associate professor of economics at Long Island University. There are many ways to look at the sanctions. One way is to um imagine or understand um, countries like the U.S. in terms of leverage um, they don't really have much to do beyond uh, using those you know, economic sanctions and also uh, going after some individuals who uh, can be targeted so I, I think of it as one of the leverages available um, for use. Of course there are a lot of uh, other tools that are available um, but we, given the context and situation, I think sanctions will still be used as part of the stick. It's part of the diplomatic efforts to um, uh, put pressure on both sides to actually um, um, hopefully be enough uh, sufficient pressure to um, um, serve as an incentive or as a threat uh, for those sides to uh, go to the table and, and negotiate um, a, a peaceful settlement. That's in general what I think the idea behind the sanctions and what I think they, uh, they are designed, what they are designed to do. Um, it, it's natural to imagine there will be maybe more of these sanctions um, uh, targeting individuals specifically, probably more than than um, businesses, because at this point, um, I don't want to get into the efficacy, but I I don't know what what difference would it make to sanction a business that is out of you know the whole country's economy is in, in shambles so it it uh, in in terms of uh, of the actual outcome of the sanction probably we can talk more but i think yeah. the gesture is, is clear and we i think we understand why where why the us is using those uh, specifically targeted sanctions to put pressure on the two sides to uh, sit down and negotiate um, a way to end the war 
Uh, this is not the first round of sanctions imposed by the U.S., by the Biden administration. Uh, they have imposed some uh, in the past on companies linked to Sudan's warring parties, the army and the rapid support forces. The U.K. followed suit, did the same. The European Union uh, did the same. Has there been any tangible effect of those measures? Uh, have the sanctions made made the war uh, less devastating, for example? Are the warring factions feeling under pressure before of, because of the sanctions and might be more willing to talk peace? What has come out of them? Um, I think that's an excellent question, and I think it's a tricky one, uh, because to actually answer the question with with uh, plenty of um, evidence and information, one has to go back and, and, and check and see um, if these companies are in fact no longer functioning, and if their bottom line is affected, and if um, and if their bottom line is affected because of sanctions, not not because of the war in Europe. I think the jury is out there. Uh, one can easily make the case. Uh, I don't think san- these sanctions, by any means, did anything to minimize um, the atrocities and and how violent the war has been. Um, the whole country economy is is completely now transformed into a war economy, and we know war economy is basically going to go into shadows. And these businesses do not need to actually use the traditional means of moving money and banks. They, we, we, we know for a fact um, both sides, RSF and, and SAF, are exporting gold right now as the war is going on. Uh, many different ways. Uh, used to go to UAE. Now the SAF is sending it to Turkey. Uh, they found ways of... Uh, these are the same companies that are doing gold for the army, but all what they need to do is probably change uh, names and, and using different tactics. And I think what we see is a really piecemeal approach. Um, it is meant to send the message rather than actually um, end up having such a, an, a, a great outcome in an efficacy in, in, in making the war less devastating or actually even in incentivizing sites to start fighting. It's, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, however, it is far from uh, doing anything that is close to um, ending the war or like stopping the war. That's Associate Professor of Economics at Long Island University, Bakri Al-Madani. He spoke with me from New York this past hour. During an online press briefing yesterday sponsored by the U.S. State Department's Johannesburg-based Africa Hub, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield was asked about reports that Iran may have been supplying drones and other weapons to the Sudan armed forces to aid their fight against the paramilitary rapid support forces, a conflict that broke out in mid-April, and whether the U.S. is concerned about the potential for Iran becoming a bigger threat in the Horn of Africa. Thomas Greenfield says the U.S. is concerned about any support for either Sudan Army General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan or RSF General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo in a war that she says is being waged against the Sudanese people. What the two generals need to do is put down their arms and go back to the negotiating table and find the solution. There will be no military solution to to, uh, this war. We're seeing thousands of people uh, die on on both sides. We've seen six million people be forced uh, from their homes. I visited Chad uh, last year, went to the border, talked to refugees who were fleeing. Uh, Chad is hosting over a million uh, refugees 
many of them from the first uh, war that that happened uh, that uh, led to the designation of uh, of a genocide. Uh, so to see this happening again uh, is unconscionable. And so it is incumbent that those who are assisting uh, these two generals to uh, fight this war against the people of Sudan cease those efforts and the generals go and negotiate a final uh, deal with civilians at the table with them. That's U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who recently returned from a trip to Guinea-Bissau, Liberia and Sierra Leone. The U.N. says the fighting in Sudan has caused at least 13,000 deaths. Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces is dismissing recent United Nations panel of experts report accusing the RSF of receiving fuel from South Sudan. An advisor to RSF on foreign affairs says the group relies on fuel supplies in the country that are under RSF control. Manyang David Mayar reports for VOA from Juba. The five-member United Nations Panel of Experts report says the Rapid Support Forces, quote, secured a supply route from South Sudan, end quote, with trucks carrying fuel moved from Juba to Wau each week. From Wau, fuel was reportedly transported by land cruisers to Raja, then to RSF control areas in South Darfur. Speaking to VOA today, Ibrahim Mukher, Foreign relations advisor to the Rapid Support Forces downplayed the report, saying the RSF has fuel reserves inside the country. This accusation lacks any basis of truth, actually. It is entirely untrue. Rapid Support Forces, RSF, being an integral part of the Sudanese army, has consistently maintained strategic reserves of petroleum. Furthermore, since the onset of the conflict, RSF has been and remains in control of the Jaili refinery, Sudan's primary fuel refinery. On Monday, South Sudan's Foreign Affairs Ministry also dismissed the UN report. In a statement, the ministry said, quote, Since the eruption of conflict in the Sisterly Republic of Sudan on April 15, 2023, the government of South Sudan has maintained a position of neutrality and has kept its borders open, end quote. Mukher says the UN panels of experts should provide evidence that RSF is receiving fuel supplies funneled through South Sudan. The panel of experts should have consulted the South Sudanese government before publishing conflicting reports. For us, we challenge them to provide evidence that RSF is receiving supplies from the countries they mentioned. Nevertheless, RSF is not subject to any embargo and can engage in any business that serves its interests. The five researchers who compiled the report for the UN Security Council said there are conflict dynamics in Darfur and violations of a long-standing UN arms embargo, including the United Arab Emirates. The UAE's permanent mission to the United Nations had disputed that allegation. The UN Security Council imposed an arms embargo on Sudan in 2004. The panel of experts was mandated to monitor compliance with that ban. For VOA News, I'm Anyang David Mayor in Juba.
You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, we'll bring you a report about indig- indigenous African grains. Stay tuned. Hello, listener of South Sudan in Focus. We have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots. All you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic, and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number, plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. That is plus one, two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Our words of wisdom for today are from Sierra Leone. My name is David Vandy from Sierra Leone, and Creole uh, is a language that we all speak in Sierra Leone. It say Akbolo, not the run, santem for nothing. It must be say they run after something or something they run after. That means a frog does not jump hurriedly in the daytime for nothing. It is either chasing its prey or something else is chasing him. The meaning of that is very straightforward. When you see, like the frog, you don't normally see them in the daytime going too fast because frog is something that is very slow, okay? And uh, the thing that will make them go faster is either they are trying to get something, that they've seen a prey that they want to pounce on, or they are being chased. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Communication ministers from the Economic Community of Central African States, ECCAS, are meeting in the capital of the Central African Republic, Bangui, to map out ways to stop the spread of hate speech. They say such language has heightened tensions and sparked a deadly fighting across the region. UN peacekeeping officials in troubled ECCS states are taking part in the meeting, as Moki Edwin Kinzaka reports from neighboring Cameroon. Officials from the Central African states say hate speech has fueled several regional crises, resulting in the displacement of millions of people. The region's communication ministers meeting in Bangui this week say some influential politicians, business moguls and community leaders are using radio, television and social media to propagate information that undermines peace and stability. Semplace Mathieu Saranji is the Prime Minister of the Central African Republic. He says leaders of the 11 member Economic Community of Central African States ACAS highly expect the ongoing Bangui meeting of ministers in charge of communication and the media to propose lasting solutions to xenophobic statements that are propagated on media outlets. He says such language is greatly responsible for several conflicts, violence, carnage, and displacement of civilians. Saranji said humanitarian crises are spiraling in Ekas states because of widespread hate speech. A separatist crisis in Western Cameroon, which has killed more than 6,000 people, was fueled in part by social media propaganda by rebel leaders who are based in Europe and the United States, according to Cameroonian officials. 
Hate on social media also fueled an ongoing conflict between ranchers and fishers in northern Cameroon and Chad. Clashes there have killed more than 100 people and displaced more than 80,000. The 1994 genocide in Rwanda was sparked by hate speech, mostly over radio, by Hutu extremists against Tutsis. Joan Adamson is deputy head of MINUSCA, the UN stabilization mission in the Central African Republic. She says the Forum on Hate Speech is an important step toward finding solutions to fighting that sparked a mass movement of people looking for safety. She says by organizing a forum to counter hate speech amplified by the digital age, all the 11 ECAS member states indicate they are ready to support and defend values that are vital to consolidate peace and security and promote human rights. Adamson says she hopes that the meeting will help to put an end to, if not reduce hate language that is tearing apart communities and constitutes a real menace to peace, social cohesion and political stability in Central African states. Adamson spoke on state TV in the CAR. The ministers said they will enact legislation to punish people who use TV, radio and print media to propagate hate speech, but gave no further details. They also have agreed to control harmful content they say runs rampant on social media. Charlie Gabriel Bock is an anthropologist and conflict resolution specialist at the Yaoundé headquartered Catholic University of Central Africa. Mbok says the ministers should launch campaigns against hate speech in restive central African towns and villages. Mbok says ECAS communication ministers should first of all educate clerics and traditional rulers who are very strong and respected in African societies that peace is priceless before using radio, television and print media to call on civilians to respect and denounce calls for violence, especially on social media. He says central African governments should also make sure media laws that are being prepared against hate and xenophobic language do not infringe on press freedom. The communication ministers say they will submit their recommendations to ECAS governments with the hope that if hate language and xenophobic statements can be stopped, peace will return to restive areas. Moki Edwin Kinzaka, VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. The United Nations and the Somali government have launched a $1.6 billion appeal to address humanitarian challenges in Somalia. The 2024 Humanitarian Needs Action Plan seeks to provide life-saving support to over 5 million Somalis this year. Mohammed Ahmed reports from Makadishu. The UN says climate shocks, conflict-wide spirit poverty and disease outbreaks continue to drive humanitarian needs in the Horn of Africa country. The appeal comes as Somalia struggles to deal with long dry spells followed by heavy rains and deadly flash floods. Tuganya Kimbro is the Program Development and Quality Assurance Director for World Vision Somalia. In terms of the overall humanitarian situation in Somalia for 2024, 
Um, World Vision sees uh, humanitarian needs remaining high in 2024 due to recurrent shocks induced by climate change and underlying factors such as conflict and insecurity. The number of people needing humanitarian assistance in 2024 has decreased to 6.9 million from 8.2 million people in 2023, according to the latest draft of the 2024 Humanitarian Needs and Response Plan. Funding for UN Somali Humanitarian Fund currently stands at only 56.6 million USD, leaving a significant gap between resources available and the need. She adds that most of the funding goes to life-saving interventions because Somalia remains fragile. However, Kimbro says humanitarian organizations, including World Vision, are gradually charting long-term sustainable solutions. Over the last few years, World Vision Somalia has seen a gradual shift in funding, focusing more on longer-term resilience linked to the humanitarian development peace nexus and away from short-term humanitarian responses. Continued investments in disaster risk management, system strengthening, social cohesion, and livelihood adaptation, and including mechanisms such as crisis modifiers are all key to foster resilience and build the capacity of communities to cope with recurrent shocks. Close to 3 million Somalis are living in internally displaced persons camps and largely depend on support from the government and aid agencies. Marian Ahmed is a mother of seven, based in a camp on the outskirts of Mogadishu. She says, I have been living with seven children in this camp for the last five years. We just get a little food and medical support, she says. But I really want to live here one day and start a new life. Right now, she adds, I don't have the means. Analysts say whereas the annual call for international support has been critical in starving of humanitarian sovereign, it hardly resolves Somalia's food security problems. Mohamed Ali is a food security expert and researcher in Mogadishu. He says the appeal of the Somali government and aid agencies is critical for millions of Somalis who are starving, but he adds... We are dealing with cyclical problems and we are here to find a lasting solution that will enable populations to develop the capacity to respond to shocks and sustainably generate their food. Studies indicate that Somalia contributes only a tiny percentage of the greenhouse gases responsible for global warming but suffers more than the most countries from adverse climate change conditions. Mohammed says the situation could get worse because of dwindling global resources and dire humanitarian situations elsewhere. He says, I'm worried that donors are increasingly getting fatigued with Somalia, as we have witnessed recently. He says, there have to be deliberate efforts by the government to seriously invest in food systems and fully exploit the local resources to gradually reduce foreign dependence. According to the humanitarian agency, OCHA, the 2023 appeal was only 43% funded, raising concerns about similar scenario this year. Ahmed Mohamed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. 
Indigenous African grains such as millet and sorghum are known to be nutritious but are not popular foods with many, especially the Gen Zs who view the grains as food for the poor. To change this narrative, a Kenyan entrepreneur is using the grains to make snacks and breakfast cereals to promote consumption of indigenous grains and foster environmental sustainability, as Juma Majenga reports from Nairobi, Kenya. At her home-based factory in Nairobi, Dora Momani is making popcorn snacks using indigenous grains. Momani says IPOP Africa was birthed three years ago from her master's degree research project on the role of indigenous African grains in promoting nutrition in Kenya's semi-arid areas. Today, Momani purchases grains such as yellow indigenous maize, millet, sorghum, and brown rice from smallholder farmers. She converts them into snacks to provide consumers with convenient and healthy snacks that are rich in nutrients and free from oil. And gluten. What IPOP is trying to do is to reclaim or bring back the glory of the traditional millets and sorghum. What we basically do is we transform these uh, indigenous grains that are climate smart, remember, because now we are talking about climate change everywhere. And we are also talking about our water tables going down. So we really want uh, people in semi-arid regions to benefit from what they have. The grains are subjected to high pressure and a temperature machine that transforms them into pops. To enhance the taste of the products, natural flavors and spices are then added through a process called food-to-food fortification. The result is a range of snacks and breakfast cereals. The products are receiving good reviews. Brandon Wayaki, a student at the United States International University Africa in Nairobi, is a consumer of the snacks. It's it's a nice snack. Like if for, like you see people love maybe taking popcorns and they're going for movies. So this can be like a nice alternative to popcorn. Yeah, because it's healthy and it still has the same taste, so it's okay. Kenya is one of the countries that still grapples with food security. More than a quarter of the children under the age of five, or two million children, have stunted growth, according to UNICEF. Experts say the situation is similar across Africa. Antonina Mutoro is a research scientist at the African Population and Health Research Center in Nairobi. We are currently experiencing a nutrition transition, which means that there is a shift in diets from traditional diets, which are mainly rich in in Um, micronutrients and fiber to diets which are more mostly processed high in fat salt and sugar so as a consequence you find that there is an increase in um, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and hypertension as well as obesity to help address climate change which is one of the factors affecting food systems in africa ipop africa has come up with a one snack one tree initiative where the company plants a tree for every product purchased. Momani says her goal is to revolutionize the snack industry and foster environmental sustainability. We are also uh, looking at a population that is getting educated more and more, and uh, we are seeing a change in consumption patterns. So in future, actually, from now going to the future, we are... um, seeing a larger population moving to consumption of healthy alternative, healthy food products. And that is the niche market that we are trying to venture into. Nutrition and food security remain major challenges on the African continent. Entrepreneurs like Mumani hope to be at least part of the solution. Juma.
Majanga, VOA News, Nairobi. And that's all we have for you this Thursday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with Sheba and the song John Rambo. If you ready smoke in your chat table, let me protect ya. And no gear go TV like a rainbow. I know you do keep on keeping on. You can rock my world. You know I do keep on keeping on. Cause my love is true. I don't need no one cause I want you. And I want you to know. You're my only. You're my joy. We've been listening to Shiva and the song John Rambo. I'm your host, Nabil Biagio in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Kwame Ufor, and engineer, Bill Andrade, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Keep on keeping